Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Joseph Boot. Well, welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Uh, I'm Joe Boot. We're here at the Institute in the Knox Cellar for our Worldview Wednesday episode. It's a special Wednesday for us. We're in the middle of a pastor's colloquium uh, here at the Institute this week. And uh, we've got one of our guests and speakers with us. He's a very good friend of ours, uh, Aaron Rock, Dr. Aaron Rock from Windsor. He's a senior pastor of uh, Harvest Windsor, Windsor, a uh, large flourishing church there. And uh, we've actually got Aaron with us this week. He's going to be part of the speaking team talking about the reopening of the churches in Ontario. Um, And uh, Dr. Rock also uh, partnered with me in the uh, crafting of the Niagara Declaration. So there's been two uh, public campaigns that we've been involved with together. Aaron, welcome. Thanks for giving up your time to be here. We really appreciate it uh, being here this week and being willing to be on our podcast. Um, why don't we just uh, kick off? We've got a few things we want to talk to you about today. Uh, these campaigns, the recent Quorum Deo conference, and also talk a little bit about uh, one of your lectures, actually, at the recent conference on responses to persecution. Uh, for the church, but let's let's kick off with the reopen Ontario churches and the um, Niagara Declaration. You and I kind of reconnected uh, this year, really, uh, after some years um, of um, getting on with our ministries. Not because we didn't want to see one another, but we were just busy guys, um, and ended up uh, partnering together on this reopen the churches campaign, and then on the Niagara Declaration. Why don't you tell us? You know, you're a pastor of a church of almost a thousand people. Uh, it's a flourishing community of believers. It's, um, uh, in a, in a a city here in, um, uh, Ontario where, you know, things are quite quiet. Why would you want to rock the boat? Why would you want to uh, stir the hornet's nests and, and, and end up in the media and the newspapers calling you and, uh, pastors giving you grief? Uh, why did you, uh, this juncture this year, uh, engage in these public campaigns to uh, reopen Ontario's churches and to defend the the liberty of the church, just to help us understand your motivation in that as a, as a pastor. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm grateful to be here and to participate in the colloquium this week. Uh, it's a great group of people from Anabaptist and Reformed backgrounds. It's interesting how people from various perspectives are coming together to, to think through vital issues uh, pertaining to the church's relationship to the state, and also just thinking very practically about how to pastor their churches through, you know, unprecedented times. Um, you know, I, I must say that I have spent almost three decades in vocational pastoral ministry, and probably in my younger years and my immaturity, I thought, you know what, it, it might be nice to be in the limelight. You know, it might be nice to climb the proverbial pastoral ladder and become a well-known guy. But God worked that out of my system pretty early on. And I have 
really no interest in being in the limelight. In fact, if you were to speak to my wife or some people that know me, I prefer to sort of stay in the background a little bit because I am adverse to a lot of the drama and the pain and the challenges that are associated with things like this. But at the same time, I acknowledge that, um, you know, sometimes when times are, are difficult, you got to step up, you got to step out. And I'm a man of conviction. I think I'm fairly clear minded about my beliefs, my perspectives on who I am, what the church is, what the call of the church is in the world. And when everything came down back in March, uh, as most people would testify, we didn't really see that coming. It was kind of unprecedented. We weren't quite sure what in the world was going on. And so we deferred to officials. We gave them some space and some time. I think that was a wise and kind thing to do to uh, to shut us down, so to speak, or at least to agree to to a temporary closure. But as the weeks and months went by, and you're you're out and about in public and you see that the Tim Hortons drive-thru is open and I can run through the drive-thru to get a coffee, but I can't serve communion to my people or I have an individual that's literally dying in the hospital and he can't get out to see his family or his family can't go in to see him rather. Uh, my wife's grandmother is diminishing in the hospital because in a nursing home actually because she has no access to her family, her support system. As you see people losing their businesses and jobs, struggling with isolation, um, you know, even in the church, some people have some tough marriages. And frankly, uh, the only thing that sustains their marriages is the fact that they're apart from each other eight to 10 hours a day at work. And all of a sudden they're together and, and you know, you're starting to realize that there's some challenges in the church. These are things that pastors are privy to that others may not be. But what really struck me is that what a reminder that we are innately relational beings. You know, if you look at the the creational account, the first negative statement essentially in scripture is pre-sin, and that's Adam was alone. He's a relational being. He's by himself. How long was he by himself? Probably just a few hours. According to the rabbis, he was out of the garden in six hours. We don't know that for sure. But in a, in a, it, certainly on that day, God acknowledged that very quickly, Adam was alone. There was a deficit in his life because he's a relational being. And we could talk at length about that. I'll, I, I won't. But I'll just say that as I thought about all of this, a theology of risk and reward came to mind. Um, locking people down, locking people up, essentially. Locking churches down was causing a lot of damage. And then I had the advantage of having a pretty high-level physician in my church, a hospital vice president, some RNs that were working in COVID units, both in Detroit and Windsor, because we happen to be a border city, you start talking to them. And yeah, there was some challenges, but the, the experiences that they were having did not match what the media was suggesting. And a lot of things kind of converged. My passion for the people of God, my concern for people's mental and spiritual and social health, uh, some concerns, rising concerns about motives of government and you know so we stepped out and this is when joe and i reconnected um and we're able to craft the letter unfortunately one of the lessons we learned from that is you get what you ask for mm. and you don't get what you don't ask for so we're thankful for that yeah aaron we're um we're in a context where i know it's true in windsor it's true in toronto where 
uh, Westminster is. I know it's true in the church in the areas where my brothers uh, Nathan and Ryan here uh, are, where lots of churches around us are not open. Um, they haven't been open for months. And uh, many of those that um, that are tentatively open have strong mask mandates, uh, or there's no singing, or there's no communion, and they're, they're a shadow of what they were. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure you've heard the mantra from some fellow pastors, well, we're loving our neighbor. Um, what do you, what, what kind of a message would you have as a, a, as a pastor caring for a, a substantial flock, dealing with the kind of issues that you're talking about? What kind of a message would you have for, for pastors who are saying, well, we're, we're just, we're loving the church community and we're loving our neighbor by staying shut until the government tells us, the civil government tells us that it, it's safe for us to, to, to meet? Well, first, I think I would acknowledge that the churches that are closed or who have been unable to open are on a bit of a continuum. So some of them, the saddest of those would be those that I, I think would, would probably need to admit the reason why we're not open is because we either have a falsified gospel or we're not really serious about the Great Commission, or we really don't have anything substantive to offer. And frankly, meeting or not meeting makes no difference in people's lives. There's churches like that. It's sad. But the reality is there's some churches out there, they're, they're probably doing people more of a favor by being closed than by being open. However, uh, I would say there are also some, we've heard from some pastors that want to open their churches, but they're in structures and systems where they might be beholden, for example, to... Mm -hmm. Uh, a, a tenured board, maybe they're newer pastors, um, they're, they would like to op reopen their churches and their ministries, but they have some strong personalities in their church saying no. Mm. So there's a, there's a political dynamic to this. I, I would say to those pastors out there that, that are listening that maybe struggle with being able to find the right words to say. Uh, you know, you, you have a sense that your church should be open that you should be moving forward, but you're just not sure how to handle that, I would say that's okay. Get behind other people that know how to do this. Get behind other people that know how to do this. At different points in ministry, we all have strengths and weaknesses. Some people are good at writing letters and putting words out and taking public stances, and then circumstances might change, and someone else might rise up and provide something for the broader church. Don't be ashamed of getting behind other people that know how to respond to situations like this. Now, the um, second part of your question pertained to, just remind me. Well, the love of neighbor. Oh, love of neighbor. Mask mandates. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, we're doing it because really it's, it's a principled stance right. to not reopen. Well, you know, in 1996, my 15-year-old brother was out with his buddies uh, going bowling, actually. And the inexperienced driver that was driving the car turned in front of a transport truck filled with fuel. They were broadsided. Two of his friends were instantly killed. My brother Jason was severely brain damaged. They didn't think he would survive. They told us best case scenario, he'd be a vegetable. Now he happened to survive. He's still living today. He's, I suppose uh, he would be 39 years old now. And um, he's permanently disabled. He has brain damage. He will never be able to marry. He'll never be able to finish high school. He'll never be able to hold a job. And that's a tragedy. But how, how would people respond if I were to get up 
in front of my church and say, you know what? I have a brother that was severely brain damaged in a car accident. Two of his friends are killed. If you really want to love your neighbor, park your car, turn in your keys, and get rid of your driver's license. How dare you get on the highway knowing that there is a fraction of a percentage of chance that you are either going to get killed, kill the people that you're driving with, or kill someone else? Now, you know, we could run the stats on that and say, oh, but the number of, you know, fatal car accidents is less than COVID or however we, you know, wanted to dump the data. But the point remains, life is filled with risk and rewards. And while I mourn my brother's disability, and I've had to learn to live with that new reality in our family, life is filled with risk and reward. And we cannot just focus on biotic health. This is the problem in all of this. People are like, but what if someone gets sick? What if someone dies? You know, a good friend posts, uh, you know, a, t a tragic photo of someone who's on a ventilator in a hospital and says, you know, make sure that you, you know, stay locked down because you don't want this to happen. Well, I could pull the same, uh, play the same game. I could post a picture of my brother with the side of his head half bashed open, his ear shredded, on a literally on a ventilator in a coma for six months. I could play that game too. But the reality is, is that we all die. At some point, we all die. And we die of a variety of causes. Life is dangerous, and I'm totally fine with people exercising a certain reasonable amount of uh, um, you know, care and protocols in their churches or in their interaction with people. I mean, if you have the, the flu, you know, in our church, even before all this happened, if you have the flu and someone showed up the flu with the, you know, to church with a stomach flu, we'd give them a kind of a dirty look. What are you doing here, man? Or if your kid comes into nursery and they're sneezing and snotting everywhere, you're going to say, hey, you know what? We really don't want your kid in the nursery today. Like, we're totally fine with that. We're totally fine. There's no stigma attached to someone who's vulnerable staying home. But the idea of locking down the world because of one virus that's killed a fraction of 1% of people, and frankly, for the most part, with few exceptions, targets the elderly, those with comorbidities, I think is nonsense. But the challenge is people have been told the same thing over and over and over again. And when you're told the same thing over and over and over again, really it's propaganda is what it is. It's imbalanced. You start to believe it. So that would be my fundamental response. Yeah. So as we look at the big picture this year, I mean, we were told, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve, you know, save the socialized medicine and so on back in March. Here we are. We're in the middle of November. I think you and I may be <laughs> among the only Christian leaders running in-person live conferences right now. Uh, and um, I'm sure with the ire of irresponsibility will be down on us by some. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's a, maybe a more nefarious uh, connotation to all of this. And, that, uh, and it seems to me at least and we've discussed this a little bit on the program, although we haven't spent an entire show yet discussing the Great Reset, which is on the cover of Time magazine. It's all over the uh, the World Economic Forum and Schwab um, and uh, Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, talking about back in as far back as September, started talking in his address to the UN about this being a, a remarkable opportunity that the that pandemic has presented to us to address climate change and economic inequalities and various other inequalities that uh, these ideologues perceive. And so months and months after the, the churches were, were, were locked down and society was being locked down, we've been in a kind of 
holding pattern of rolling lockdowns, restrictions. Um, even after our efforts to get the churches open, we are still at 30%. Um, and, you know, that, that may not affect many churches, but a church like yours uh, has a significant impact. There's a thousand people coming in there on a, on, on a Sunday morning. Um, and there are other churches in this area near the Institute that to have, you know, several thousand members that uh, obviously over the long term can't uh, function as a church under those kind of restrictions. So there seems to be this, uh, not just now about, um, the, as you say, the uh, the virus and rolling lockdowns and responding to this and that situation. There seems to be a broader uh, ideological situation emerging that's led Christians, including you and I, we've had some conversations about this, Aaron, uh, to, to have to think through what does it mean if um, the, some of these uh, ideologues, some of these technocrats, some of these world leaders get their way? And this becomes very much about hitting 2030 targets of, um, uh, of carbon reduction. And th- again, this is the language of our own prime minister. This is not conspiracy theories unless we've started ad- publishing conspiracy theories in Time magazine now. Um, these, these are what these people are actually talking about. This is what they want. Um, and so this has led to some discussion. You and I have even talked about uh, what are the appropriate responses of Christians in times of persecution. We'll come at the end of the program uh, to some questions about, you know, practically how do we respond to the threat, renewed threat of lockdowns. But in the, uh, in, in the longer term, um, we just had a conference actually at, at your church uh, which was fantastic over the weekend, um, Coram Deo. And uh, it was an exciting time together. And I was intrigued listening to one of your uh, sessions. Um, uh, you were speaking about uh, um, the responses that we see in scripture to persecution. So f- sort of going up to 10,000 feet here and, and, and not just the narrow focus on the immediacy of the pandemic response or the crisis, let's say. I think it's very much a crisis that's been man-made at this point. If we are indeed in a season of increased persecution for the church, you know, on this program, we've talked in recent weeks about Bill C-6 as well, Bill C-7, threats of further lockdowns. Uh, You were talking just before this program about what's happened to some of our Mennonite brothers and sisters with their places being locked down and uh, their schools closed and so on. Tell us a bit about Coram Deo, why you run uh, that conference uh, and why you would go ahead and put it on at a time like this. And um, tell us a little bit about what you see uh, are the options or or what Christians are required to do or or need to think about in times of hostility, times of persecution, times where there's these kinds of threats to the life of the church. Well, I think one of the, one of my, pastoral approaches or strategies, if you might want to call it and all of that, is I, fundamentally, I've been called to pastor Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. And so I've tried to do as good of a job as I can in educating our people and our leadership on matters relevant to the current circumstances. So right out of the gates, you know, we had the lockdown in March. By April, I did an eight-hour course um, called Christian Responses to the Global Pandemic. It was on Zoom at the time. It was uh, four Wednesdays for two hours, sorting through 
ethical, theological, cultural issues. We had a lot of our people in on that. And I think that created a high level of unity. I've been very tight with my eldership. I have some high, high functioning, like true godly and wise men functioning in my elders council. We have a high level of unity. I'd encourage all the pastors listening to make sure that you are working overtime to train and teach and dialogue with and ask questions of and keep your leadership on board. The conference then, this is our second year running it. Last year we had a different theme. And this year we had a theme originally identified pertaining to the family and family dynamics. We had a speaker that was going to come in from Texas, but we had to cancel all of that because of the border restriction. So we decided to title our Quorumdale conference this year, Christian Responses to the Radicalization of Western Culture. And we wanted to address some themes that would help our people. We have a lot of young people and college students in our church, and young adults and people, people, people working in various professions to, to be very aware of the challenges of being functional as a Christian church in Canada. I mean, the, the thing, the cultural Marxism, the, the matters pertaining to the lockdown, the, the radical LBGTQ uh, agenda, which has been um, kind of brought to the forefront again, the Black Lives Matter movement, which I'm convinced really isn't about Black Lives Matter at all. And we could speak about that later or another point. But all of these things, people are thinking through the issues. And I don't want my people to be duped. I don't want my people to be led astray. So we're speaking truth into these, these situations and answering their questions. So when it comes to persecution, I've been thinking about this. What are the appropriate responses to persecution? You know, until maybe the last few years, this was sort of a theoretical conversation. This was a conversation, you know, we'd study, we'd study Mennonite history or, or we would study the, some of the reformers and some of the, the challenges that they experienced. And it was all a history lesson. But now people are actually wondering, like, things are changing so fast. What if it literally becomes illegal? And this isn't, I'm not a conspiratorial guy. In fact, it seems kind of weird even saying it. What if I am banned from preaching the full gospel of Jesus Christ? We're on the cusp of that, folks. I mean, wake up. We're on the cusp of that. What if our people cannot educate their children in the way that God has given them the responsibilities to do? What do you do? So my message was essentially pray, bless, die, or move. And of course, there's a few other options in Scripture, but we want to be prayerful. I, I've, I've challenged our people to pray for our enemies, perceived enemies or real enemies. I've, I've encouraged them to bless them, to speak well, to be careful in how they speak of people in government positions, to be substantive in their criticisms rather than you know, just throwing out caricatures or memes, making fun of someone's appearance they don't happen to like. I've challenged our people to seriously consider, um, you know, how would you respond if someone were to put a gun to your head? and say, you know, deny Jesus Christ or it's lights out. Like, how would you respond to that? And then moving, you know, Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 10. And fortunately, you know, many of our um, friends from Mennonite and Amish and Anabaptist backgrounds have probably done this more recently than some of us from, you know, English and Irish and German backgrounds. But um, moving, Jesus says, you know, if they, you know, be prepared to give your life unto death. But at the end of the day, you might want to flee to another town and there's never going to be a time when there's not some town in Israel where you can't go. That's essentially Jesus message. And when you say that to people, you're like, are you kidding me? But folks, the time might come when we have to pack our bags and get out of Dodge. And it's crazy. It sounds crazy even coming out of my mouth. And those of you that are listening to me, 
that don't know me might think, this guy's a nut. I know it sounds nutty. But the reality is things are changing so fast that there, there might be the need, maybe not for my sake. I'm a big boy. I can put up with a lot of stuff. But for my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren after that, there might become a time, come a time when it's irresponsible for members of the Christian church not to consider moving to someplace. Now, right now, you know, we're working hard to try to turn back the tide and we're hopeful and we're persevering and all that sort of thing. The big question is where and when and how and what would that look like? Obviously, if Christians just scatter in all different directions, that's probably not helpful. There should be some sort of a unified response. But um, it, it's not true in in the scriptures and it's not it's not true if you look at Christian history, the only response is to stay put, continue to be beaten down, beaten up, pushed aside. There, there are other viable responses available to the people of God. By the way, I'm not making any plans at this point, but it's just a conversation. I want to signal to my people, put this on their radar, that this is a valid option for the people of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, at the end of Matthew, uh, Jesus... Uh, presupposes actually that uh, during the assault on Jerusalem that uh, that his people will flee to the mountains and will be moving and that they and to pray that their flight is not in winter um so the uh the it's interesting as we look at different you know periods in history we can say that some peoples some groups i mean the obvious more recent example would be the the Jews in Europe um, stayed too long. Many of them did get out. Uh, uh, they saw what was coming with the Third Reich, um, but some of them stayed too long, and 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 uh, they paid a high price. But um, it's I do think it's important what you've highlighted there that uh, you know there are a number of responses, and I think sometimes in our sort of pietistic uh, sort of um, sometimes romanticizing of persecution as a people have never really been through it. Uh, we talk as though, well, you know, we just have to hunker down and 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 hold the fort and just uh, suck it up. Um, uh, but actually, I see what I see um, as cultural pressure comes on is not people sucking it up and standing faithfully for Christ, but a lot of people caving, compromising, and that all the talk of uh, resisting and you know, well, we're just going to stand for the Lord. Um, uh, I, in one of a recent article, I discussed this whole idea that in a relatively small test, like the one we're currently in, this says a lot about how we'll respond when, how people will respond when the pressure is increased, when it gets even more severe. If you can't withstand a minor test faithfully, are you really going to stand when the ultimate tests come? And, uh, of course the apostle Paul, he didn't, uh, just take uh, and invite persecution. He tried to. He sought to use his citizenship. He appealed to the law to escape flogging. He eventually, appealed his case all the way to Caesar, in order to use his citizenship as a Roman to try and fight for his freedom. And of course, for many people, um, eventually it became impossible, uh, and they they had to flee. So, uh, I do think that um, you raise a really interesting point there. Why? Why, Aaron, I mean, when I listen to you talk, um, and I mean, one of the things that has encouraged me and, and has been a big encouragement to me over these last few months is to find another pastor uh, who is uh, 
so vocal, so committed to speaking to and educating their people on these issues. Um, I'm not quite as deeply buried in the pastoral ministry as I was. Now, of course, I'm an elder at Westminster. I I preach once a month, but I'm uh, uh, Dr. David Robinson is now carrying the primary responsibility now at Westminster Chapel so that I can focus on the work of the Institute. But it's very encouraging to encounter pastors like yourself who are aware of these issues, who are, if I can put it this way, teaching worldviewishly and with, with a cultural awareness of what's going on. You know, Charles Spurgeon used to say, I, I, I preach with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other uh, because there's a desire to, to relate the reality of the gospel we preach to the world in which we actually live. Can you comment just a little bit on, uh, and I don't want to put you on the spot with this, but this is what the podcast kind of does. Um, why are there not more people like you, Aaron? Why, why are there not more pastors uh, speaking in this way? I mean, I'm, uh, I don't want to say that uh, we're, we don't want to have an Elijah complex in the cave here and say, well, we're the only ones, but, the reality is that in in Canada, I mean, this is why we pastors write to us all the time, looking for support and advice and counsel and so on. There just isn't that many. C- can you comment at all on why is it that there just aren't that many voices raising this kind of alarm, giving this sort of counsel? Why is it that the dominant response tends to be, in one way or another, a bit of a white flag? Uh, rather than the pushback and uh, let's, you know, let's address the issues. What are the responses? How do we begin to engage the culture? Just simply not that many pastors doing that. Can you help diagnose that a bit? You know, I want to be very kind because I believe there's a lot of good men out there and I I never want to posture myself in some sort of highfalutin, grandiose, super spiritual way. Um, but I, but I'm not a newbie to this either. You know, I've, I've been a pastor for you know more of my life than I wasn't. And I've seen a lot of things happen in my, my time. I think there's many reasons. I think, uh, I think there's a professionalization of the, the, the office. There's a problem. Many pastors see themselves more as employees than actual shepherds of the flock. And so I don't want to lose my job, right? I don't want to rock the boat. The problem is by not rocking the boat, you are sinking your boat. People are leaving your churches over it. And we're hearing from people who have been pastored by some good men. P- private people, I don't even know these people. They're emailing me. They're Facebook messaging me saying, I want to be kind, but my pastor is saying nothing. I don't know what to do. I'm frustrated. I wish I lived closer to your church. And I don't, I don't find any joy in that. I find that sad. I find that sad. So I think part of it is the professionalization of of the pulpit. I think part of it is the structure of many churches are uh, unbiblical, where we have uh, essentially some sort of a a strange view that uh, we need to appeal to the lowest common denominator. We need everybody to agree on it. It's a democracy. You know, we got three people that sit in the back row every week and one that gives a lot of money that says we can't reopen our church, so we'll, we'll bow to them. I think that's a dynamic for some churches. I think for some newer pastors, we'll give them a little bit of a pass, a little bit of a break, but I, I think they just struggle to find the words. They're, they're, they're being confronted with competing messages. Uh, some are being forced 
by their denominations or their associations or their affiliations to take a particular stance contrary to their own conscience. I think there's many factors for this. And then frankly, I think some are just scared to death. They're just like deer in the headlights. They do not know whether they should turn to the right or the left uh, to look up or down. They, they do not know what to do. But I would just urge, uh, I, I don't think that I'm going to be super successful in convincing people that have taken a dramatically alternative perspective to this to join my side, so to speak. But I think we could speak clearly into the lies of those that are sort of a neutral territory. Okay, don't be like Switzerland. Don't be neutral on everything. Like take a stance, get into the word, take some courses, listen to Joe's podcast, read some books, get on the phone with us, send us an email. Um, start having conversations. If you just don't know what to do, okay, folks, it's been seven or eight months now. Time's up. You need to, you need to choose. You need to take a stance on this. Um, staying in this never-never land is disturbing. It's not going to be super helpful for your spiritual health, your mental health, or, or otherwise, and it's not helping your people. I think we, we've come to, I, I've long been concerned about these issues, the professionalization of the pulpit, where guys get up and they're like, what do the people want to hear rather than what does God's word tell me I need to declare? Fearful leadership. Uh, again, leaders, churches that are led by the, by the lowest common denominator. The, these are all the things that are, are, I think, factors for people. And then, you know what? I, I hate to say this, but I have a suspicion that some guys spend more time on social media than they do in real life. I mean, step outside your door. Shut your television off for a couple days. Get off Twitter. Get off Facebook. Step outside and just walk around. Where are all the caskets? Where are all the people dying in the streets? People compare this to the Spanish flu. I watched a documentary of a couple people in their 80s or 90s. They're probably dead now, but they they were talking about their experiences when they were children during the Spanish flu. And they said, we're little kids and we'd run out and there'd be all these boxes down the streets and we'd run up and play on these boxes. And our mothers would come out horrified and say, get off those boxes. Those are caskets. There's dead people in there. And the horse carriages would come down the street and pick up people's bodies. And people were like, this is the Spanish flu. Everyone's dying. Folks, News, news. Uh, the news is we're not in a pandemic. It's an outbreak. There's a flu. There's a there's a, a virus out there. It's a bad virus. I don't want to get it. Nobody wants to get it. It's a bad virus. Maybe a little worse than some. Uh, if it comes all at once, yeah, it might overwhelm the system. It hasn't. Uh, but even if it was a bad virus where more people were dying, hey, we're not just biotic beings. Okay, you have a, a congregation to feed, guys. You have people to comfort. You have people to grieve with. You know, you got to get out of your easy chair, put down the TV remote, and get back to pastoring and shepherding your people. Amen. Aaron, do you have any, I'm going to give uh, the last question to my colleague, Nathan, in a moment. Um, but before we come to that final question, do you have any concern at all that, I mean, we, we've experienced at Westminster, much like you, uh, a, a burgeoning of our congregation. Um, the, there are people coming from various parts of Toronto and the GTA because our church is open and uh, we don't have uh, forced mask mandates that are going to, force people to cover up when they come in 
and we're singing God's praise and we take the Lord's Supper. And people are desperate for that, hungry for it. And yet there are churches and pastors who are saying, we're not opening till next spring, next summer. We're going to be, we'll we'll be shut until the government says we can open. Do you have any concern at all that these pastors who are expecting their flocks to return are potentially uh, mistaken? I mean, we already can see that the early sort of enthusiasm about online church and how, gosh, in these first few weeks, we've had more people tuned in to our, uh, to our virtual service and kept, would come on a Sunday morning. And studies are showing that these, these are tailing off dramatically. You talk to the average Christian who's not going to church for worship, and they've stopped tuning in to uh, the sermon, or it's certainly not on a Sunday morning as if they get time midweek, they may take a quick look at the the church's sermon, well, not across the board, but this is a big, big issue. Um, some churches that were locked down for many months and did begin to open up tentatively have found that um, 50, 60, 70% of their congregation has not returned. Do you have any concern that uh, that is going to be the lot for some pastors? And is that a good thing in that there's a sifting in the church going on? Um, or are we going to see churches that have really stood against this um, uh, in a certain sense, an assault on the church's independence and liberty, are, are the churches that have stood faithfully actually going to be long-term the beneficiaries because actually people are looking for places that are faithfully teaching the word, faithfully administering the sacraments, faithfully caring uh, for their people, and who are willing to take a stand in the midst of oppression. I mean, is there a is there a bit of a rude awakening coming is, I guess, what I'm asking? You know, we, we too have lost, I, I think we've lost, I haven't received any official notices, but I, th- I think we've probably lost a few people through this that won't come back. We've picked up several from other churches. We've also galvanized and clarified the nature of the church and the state and the nature of Christian, the Christian life to many of our people that have come back. I've heard stories of very large churches, churches bigger than ours that have basically the equivalent of three or four small groups attending them, you know, 50, 60 people that are coming out on Sunday morning. You could, you might as well bring your bowling ball to church and do some bowling between the services. I mean, the the, the aisles are empty. So you're, you're hearing this kind of stuff. I think these churches do have great potential to rebuild, but the people they're going to bring back are probably going to be mediocre people that don't really see the blessing. They don't have don't they don't have a rich theology of incarnational ministry. They they essentially they're the kind of people that would be content with a Zoom marriage, or a Zoom dating relationship, or just you know having a pen pal or something like that. You know our our God came in the flesh and dwelt among us. Now he he wrote a book too. He gave us the Word of God, but he also he came in the flesh, and he didn't just come in the flesh to die on a cross. He came on the, in the flesh to live among us. And we know that while God is omnipresent, God does manifest himself through his gathered people. He manifests himself through, through our obedience to his word. I mean, on an experiential level, this is difficult to convince a unbeliever of, but on an, experiential, on an experiential level, those of us that have actually had the privilege of participating in a healthy church can identify time after time after time when we know the Spirit of God has descended upon his gathered people. 
a moment in a sermon, a moment witnessing a baptism, around the Lord's Supper, communing together as we pray and worship, where it's like God is in the house in the fullest and richest sense of the word. And, you know, the whole Zoom church thing, uh, I, again, I, I'm trying to be kind, but frankly, I think it's, 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 almost, it's almost like a comedy to me now. It's almost like a comedy. You know, I, I, I have probably several hundred, I don't even know, I don't listen to myself preach after I preach, but I probably have several hundred, maybe close to a thousand videos out there on our website and on YouTube and whatever past sermons that I've preached. So do you. So do thousands of other pastors across the country. We have thousands of Christian songs. If Zoom Church is where it's at, you know what? All of us could just quit, go get gainful employment elsewhere. There, there's enough pre-recorded songs, hymns, Good point. and sermons out there. We never have to preach another sermon in our lives. I could spend the rest of my life on YouTube listening to various sermons. There's no reason to preach an original. There's no reason for it at all. Why, why do we put the effort in to to preparing a sermon, calling people to get in their vehicles, you know, burn fuel, release carbon to the atmosphere, come to church Amen. and sit under the preaching of the word of God. Why do we do this to ourselves? Because we believe that God manifests himself in a special way when his people gather. And unfortunately for many, the church has been reduced to a social club or some sort of the equivalent of a you know, a, a feel-good institution, just some place that I go and I don't have any other time. And I would just say this to those churches, and I hope this is convicting for some of my listeners. If you continue to act the way you're acting, you're not opening your church, you're not meeting with your people, you're not defending your purpose, but your, pa your, your congregants see you at Walmart, and they see you at Tim Hortons, and they see you on the street, you know what you're saying to them? Yeah, church isn't essential. It's not essential. Walmart's essential. My kid getting back in hockey is essential. You getting back in school and getting an A is essential, but church isn't essential. The, the messaging, the subliminal messaging that you're putting out there is so dangerous. And I would say even mildly blasphemous to the purposes of God. So this, this idea of, of treating the church in such a cavalier way. And again, folks, I know there's a virus out there. I know there's a virus out there. I know some people have died from it. I get it. You don't have to convince me. I don't need more, more data. But you have to look at the bigger picture. There's politicians out there that are leveraging this to get their way, to get things through. Look, we don't even live in a functional democracy right now. You know, effectively, we have more or less a closed or nearly closed judiciary, a closed or nearly closed legislature, a, a sort of dysfunctional executive because the executive always defers to the technocrats, which aren't our elected officials. So we didn't have, really have a functioning government. And for some weird reason, on November the 11th, everyone threw a poppy on. And they're celebrating Remembrance Day and all these freedoms. You know, two, two generations of my family lost people in battle and, and left widows here in Canada. And we honor these people that died for our freedoms and we're running out these poppies on. But at the same time, we don't understand the, the, the need to stand up when virus aside, okay, wake up. People are peddling their nefarious, their wicked, their godless agendas during this time. And frankly, it's disgusting. And the people of God among all people need to stand up and say something. I'll just make one more comment. We were interacting a while ago, some 
friends and I with an, an unbelieving man who was pretty upset about the lockdown and all that. And he, out of out of his mouth, now this was shared with me secondhand. Out of his mouth, he said, I think the church is the last institution that's going to take a stand against this stuff. This is a guy that doesn't even go to church. And I just thought to myself, how convicting is that? This guy has probably never donned the doorstep of a church in years, understood that there's something about the church. If the church fails to take a stand against these nefarious plans, who is going to speak out? So I think we need to be the prophetic voice in our country and beyond. Yeah, yeah we've said it frequently here. If the uh, If the church doesn't, defend liberty. It was the first truly free institution in the history of the Western world. If it doesn't continue to stand for that, freedoms disappear for everyone. I'm going to give the last mm -hmm. question to my colleague, Nathan, here. Mm -hmm. uh, I've kept him waiting a little bit. So Nathan, <laughs> you, I know you've got an important question. So sure. Yeah. Just, just in terms of wrapping this up. Yeah. As we wrap it up, uh, Aaron, you mentioned earlier that uh, part of the role of the pastor is training people to understand the current circumstances. Well, here are the current circumstances. Right now, our premier, Doug Ford, is saying things like, we are staring down the barrel of another lockdown. We have churches in the UK. They've been told to close their churches. Uh, we have in Manitoba, the province immediately to the west of us in Ontario. They're under an indefinite closure of their churches. So for those pastors that they don't want to wave the white flag, they want to remain faithful. Uh, Aaron, Joe, as pastors, what, what is some advice you can offer uh, some of these pastors that want to be faithful, uh, looking into the future, into the the winter that we're looking at ahead of us here. And I just say, uh, on top of that, I think uh, an emphasis for me is the sense of being faithful where they are. Yeah. Un understanding what you said earlier about being willing to move, that's on the table, but there's also a, a large contingent of pastors mm -hmm. who feel call a calling to the place and to the people where they are. That's right. So yeah. even even... Next week, what are they to do in some yeah. of these places? Yeah. Well, I'll just tell you what we've done, if, if it's of any help. I've sought to be proactive rather than reactive. I think that's really important. So generally, when lockdowns or mask mandates come out, come out, you hear about it, you know, three, four days or two weeks or whatever in advance. As soon as you hear word of it, you need to act immediately. So for our area, when they tried to slap a mask bile on the whole city, I immediately wrote a letter to the mayor. And I think in a letter, you want to start off, you want to be kind, cordial, respectful, because we are, we appreciate civil servants. We're, we're, we're their uh, cheerleaders when they're functioning properly. We're their greatest cheerleaders. We want them to succeed. We want them to do well. We didn't stand, uh, you know, drive to voting poll stations and vote these people in for no reason. We want them to do a good job. So we're very respectful of them. We do pray for them and seek to be of an encouragement to them. We remind them of the nature of the church. And then uh, what we did with the mask mandate is we said, look, um, we will not accept any protocols from any level of government without peer-reviewed medical studies, and listen to this, from persons without political liability. I do not want to receive any mandates from someone who's being paid to get reelected or getting paid to keep their job with whoever's government. So we were successful in that fight and had the exemption granted to us. We still welcome people in our church to wear masks if they'd like, but it's not a mandate in Windsor, Ontario. With regard to the potential of a second lockdown, we wrote a second letter just recently to the uh, medical director of health in our area, because from what we understand, the 
provincial government is going to download that to the local health units. Um, and we basically said, and we've not received a response yet, by the way, but we basically said a couple of things, again, being very respectful, thankful for your, your, um, your role, but we will give consideration to closing our church with uh, two sort of stipulations in place. The first would be that you need to demonstrate a high, a high level of deaths. Now, that sounds like super morbid, and I, I know there's going to be some reactions to that. I get it. But the idea is I'm not, I'm not going to lock down my church and abandon my people to despair, to economic problems, to marital issues, to child abuse, and all this kind of stuff. This is real. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to abandon my post because there's a rise in cases. The case count's gone up. I'm not going to do that. And um, this, the kind of the the second um, prong of that would be that if if you close us down, you close everybody down. The only people I want to see in the streets are cops and firefighters. Everybody goes. If you even think that you're going to close our church and keep Tim Hortons open, hundred percent no. You think you're going to close our church and keep LCBO open? Not going to happen. You think you're going to close our church and keep Chrysler open? Not going to happen. We will never permit ourselves to be titled a non-essential service. That's disgusting. We're beyond an essential service. So those are our two stipulations. I've already told our church. You know, I'm not trying to be a tough guy. Okay, I don't like this. I don't like the drama. It keeps me up at night. I'd rather just live a quiet and peaceful life, removed from all the drama. I'm not looking for public applause in any way, shape, or form. But I will not abandon my people to despair unless I know it's because they're going to literally die from this. And I will not close my church if a business that sells donuts and coffee is allowed to remain open. So that's our stance on this. I would encourage other churches to be proactive. If you're already locked down and you're in a situation where you know, you've already been told, take the stance. I mean, a unified stance. I think it's reasonable too. I mean, even a secular person, if they don't love Jesus, they couldn't care less what I do. They think, you know, it's just a bunch of blue haired ladies hanging out and enjoying sentimental music or something. If that's their vision of the church, fine. But I think the common sense that I'm articulating should ring a bell with even hard hearted people. Why would you close down a church and let the LCBO stay open? Why, why would you say churches aren't essential? Okay, but the lumber store is still open. So go buy your two by fours and build your deck. But you can't open your church. That's not going to happen a second time in Windsor, Ontario under my watch. Yeah, I, I totally agree with, with all of that. And I think that um, one of the things that perhaps could be added is that the moment has come, I think, for us to say when the state commands what God forbids, or forbids what God commands, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. And God commands that we worship him, that we preach his word, that we come around his table, that we pray for one another, that we lay hands on the sick, uh, that we um, ordain people into office, that we give diaconal care to one another. I don't think these are optional commands. I don't think the Great Commission is is given um, a, a, but suspended in the event of war, disease, plague, 
outside of all of the arguments or discussions around, you know, how severe uh, this um, this virus is, it doesn't matter how severe it is. The Great Commission isn't suspended uh, simply because we have a situation that's occurred throughout human history that war and plague and disease have affected human beings. So I think the time has come for, in these contexts, that are for these pastors to take a stand in terms of the Constitution, in terms of common law, in terms of our own Christian history. And I think it also means that there, are, there are, have been and there remain places throughout the world today where Christians are persecuted, where they're monitored, and where they meet in secret. And I think that, that, that if we're in a situation where the, what Aaron has talked about, trying to get out in front of this, fails, and the lockdowns come anyway, and they throw the chain on our door after we've resisted and gathered for worship anyway, uh, then there are barns in the countryside, and there are, there are basements in houses, and there are uh, places for Christians to gather for worship, irrespective of government uh, mandates. And so there may come a point where these pastors have to say, okay, uh, they've locked down the building. Um, it's not uh, possible for us now after this or that um, injunction or fine or whatever. I, by the way, I think that, uh, that, uh, that at this point, it becomes, that disobedience becomes basically um, uh, necessary, and I'm not convinced that these things are going to hold up in the courts. It's going to be years of processing court challenges uh, of, of of churches that maybe don't pay fines. It's going to be years in the courts of whether those fines are even lawful, whether they hold up to constitutional scrutiny. In the meantime, the church needs to meet, and if it needs to meet in secret, it needs to meet in secret, and that's what the church has had to do in various places down through centuries. But I agree with Aaron. There's no question of us abandoning our posts in this. So with that, I think um, my thanks to Nathan, Ryan, Aaron, it's been a real pleasure, blessing to have you with us. We're so thankful for you, for your church, for uh, your partnership in the Reopen the Churches campaign and the Niagara Declaration that we have done together um, for the Quorum Deo Conference. Thanks for having us at that, by the way, and for being here at our colloquium to input and to share the wisdom that God's given you with these uh, pastors and for being on this podcast. And we look forward to hopefully having you again. You're welcome. Even if it's in a, a digital format and we don't Thank have you. the pleasure of your company right here in the room. That's it for today, folks. Um, join us again for Worldview Wednesday next week. We look forward to uh, being with you again soon. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time